Amen, and it's a joy to sing that with you. Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. And today we'll read verses 30 to 41 together. Mark 9, beginning at verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first of all, he must be last of all, and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Before 1543... Earthlings, like ourselves, enjoyed thinking that we were at the center of the universe. Everything revolved around us, or so we thought. Since the 2nd century B.C., Ptolemy's research had led us to believe this conclusion. With confidence, we were able to assert that we were the center of the action, the hub of the wheel, the capital of the cosmos, the focal point of the universe. That was us. But then came Copernicus, asking his bothersome questions like, why don't ships fall off the edge of the earth? What causes seasons to change? Why do some stars appear during the day and others at night? Now, as good as those questions were, they weren't real received. Some tried to ignore these things for close to a hundred years. Others outright denied them. And then when Galileo came along and tried to confirm Copernicus' findings, he was kicked out of the Catholic Church. What Copernicus did for our solar system, Christ in this passage does for our souls. He, He tells us that even though we think we're at the center of it all, we're not. Life is not about our plans, our wishes, our desires, our expectations, our assumptions, but about his mission to save the lost and to see sinful people redeemed for his honor and glory. 
Now, we object just as hardly to this reality as those individuals did long before us. Now, of course, I know that there's not a Christian in here today who would resist the centrality of Christ and the gospel. I don't think there's anyone in here who would actually claim that the plan of salvation pertains solely to our happiness and comfort, at least on paper. We know that Christ is first, that we are not. But don't we sometimes act as if we are the center of the spiritual universe? I mean, as if everything should go our way and everybody should exist for our happiness and well-being. Let me give you an example. Think back to the last time that you were sitting in the parking lot, not here, but at a busy store. Waiting patiently for someone to back out of a parking space, you have your turn signal on. And the person backs out in such a way that you have to actually let them get out of the way first. And while you're waiting for them to get out of the way, someone else zooms into that parking spot. How did that make you feel in that moment? I would tend to think that you were pretty frustrated. Why? Because you deserve that parking space. Because you were the one that waited, and it should have happened the way that you wanted it to happen. We get frustrated when things don't go our way, when life doesn't revolve around us. How does it make you feel when you work hard on a project and someone else gets the credit? Someone else gets the higher grade. Someone else gets the better job opportunity. It's not good. It's frustrating. It's disappointing. Why? Because you should have been the focus. You should have received the glory. You should have got the attention. What do you do when your spouse or kids don't meet your expectations and trample over your preferences after a long day of work? I assume that more times than not, something like that could make you angry. Why? Because shouldn't they have known to orient their lives and preferences around what you wanted? I mean, after all, you're home now. Shouldn't they have done everything to please you because you're the center of the universe? You're the center of your home? See, the truth is that we're all consumed with self and humility and selflessness. They're far into human DNA. We naturally look out for, number one, we naturally look out for self. And if you ever find it hard to accept that you're not the center of the universe, I want you to know that you're not alone. The disciples in this text struggled to accept this fact as well. Even after repeated teaching. We know from our study in the book of Mark that so far, the disciples have rightly identified Jesus as the Messiah. But what did they think that was going to do for them? They thought that once they identified this Jesus as Messiah, that everything was going to be great. He was going to come in. He was going to take over. He was going to actually dominate the Romans. He was going to set up an eternal kingdom in which they would rule and reign in comfort and happiness forever after. But... As soon as they identify Jesus as the Messiah, what happens? Jesus begins to clarify what the Messiah has actually come to accomplish. And it's way different than what they expected. In fact, 
Beginning from that point in chapter 8, where Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, everything leading up from chapter 8 to chapter 9, all the way into the end of chapter 10, is Jesus trying to correct their understanding of the Messiah. They thought the Messiah coming would mean that their lives would be great and grand and glorious forever. And Jesus is trying to tell them, yes, it will be great and grand and glorious, but there will be suffering first. It will be hard first. There's actually three different instances in these few chapters in which Jesus will again remind them, yes, I am the Messiah, but first of all, you need to know that I'm going to suffer. I will die. I will rise again. And then interestingly, every time Jesus says that, they object because they don't like its implications for their own well-being. Peter was the first one to argue with Jesus and say, no, 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 this shouldn't happen this way. And then Jesus had to clarify In this text, we see that Jesus presents this truth again. And then, once again, they object. How do we know that? Because they're arguing about greatness and significance. The same thing will happen again later on in chapter 10. Ultimately, Jesus is trying to prepare them to follow him well, and they cannot follow him if they put themselves out front. They need to understand what it means to follow Jesus, and that requires selflessness. That requires humility. That's what the text today is all about. When you read through it the first time, you could think, wow, this seems rather disconnected. I don't understand how the argument follows here, but I think you'll see, and it will become clear, that Jesus, through all of these verses in the text, is clearly showing us that discipleship, excuse me, that humility is essential for discipleship. Humility is essential for discipleship. And he shows this to us in three different ways. The first way is actually his inevitable mission of sacrifice. His inevitable mission of sacrifice. His inevitable mission of sacrifice, it calls us to humility. What Jesus tells them about his own destiny in verses 30 through 32 is intended to remind them of the implications of following him. And telling them that he will suffer, he is reminding them that if they're going to follow him, they too will suffer. They needed to get this. Notice verse 30. It says they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples and saying to them. Now remember, he's in Galilee again. He's making his way up or down to Jerusalem. He has been in Caesarea Philippi. So if you're looking at your Bible map, he's kind of been in the uh, northwest corner or northeast corner and he's making his way down to the left side of the Sea of Galilee. He's back in this area where he was really popular. But notice what it says. He didn't want anyone to know that he was there. Why is that? Do you remember? Because now he's focusing on his disciples. There's no more public ministry for Jesus. He is on his way to die in Jerusalem and he only has a limited amount of time left and there are some lessons that these men need to know before he endures his crucifixion. And so he's teaching his disciples. The verb there is ongoing and active. He was teaching. He was saying to them continually. He wants them to grasp this. And what is it that he wants them to grasp? Verse 31, the second half of the verse. Here it is. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Now, dear Christian, I need you to understand something. If you're here today, we have to grasp this phrase, Son of Man. Jesus uses his titles very significantly. 
In fact, in the book of Mark, he calls himself son of man more than any other thing. What would you say if somebody came to you and said, why does Jesus call himself the son of man? What would be your answer? Let me help you with that. Because it's very important to understanding this text. This enigmatic title could be used one of two ways. If you were were a Jew living in first century Palestine during this time, when you heard the words, son of man, you would have thought of one of two things. One would be just a unique way of referring to someone who lives on this earth, like an earthling, someone who comes from another human being. It was a turn of phrase, if you will. But that wasn't the only way in which the term was understood. Especially for those who understood the Old Testament, the term Son of Man was a special title that was given to this prophetic figure in Daniel chapter 7 who would come and rule and reign with authority and power. If you want to see that in greater detail, you could turn to Daniel 7 verses 14 to 15 or at least jot it down and look at it. But in that passage, it was a special kind of human with a special kind of authority who would come and rule and reign. And so Jesus here in this usage seems to be referring to the latter. He's already used this term in Mark 2.10 and in 2.28, not just to refer to himself as some type of human, but he uses the term to back up his authority. Like he has the right to do certain things that other people don't have the right to do. He just used the term in chapter 8, verse 29, as a substitute for the divine Messiah. So in the context of talking about the Messiah, he then calls himself the Son of Man. They're put on equal plane with one another. And then it was just used again in chapter 9, verse 9, after God the Father himself pointed out Jesus and said, This is my beloved Son. So Son of Man, he's not just talking about he's an earthling, he came from a human being. He's talking about this special title of authority from the Old Testament. But here's the significance. With this special title of authority on his lips, what does he follow it with? (laughs) The Son of Man is going to, and this just doesn't make any sense to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. What does that mean? Delivered? What's exactly what you think, like when you deliver somebody into the hands of the authorities? This authoritative figure is going to be placed under the authority of the government at that time and handed over like a criminal. That's the legal term that's used there. And not only is he going to be handed over, but it says that they will kill him. It doesn't get any more humble than that. It doesn't get any more low than that. Even though there's this theme of authority, he's wrapping the idea of suffering around it, and this is countercultural. This is strange to them. And it's interesting that he says and repeats again that when he is killed, he reiterates that, after three days he will rise. This shows that he's going to be murdered, he's going to be killed, he's going to come back to life, They do not get this. They don't understand. They don't understand how somebody with such authority could ever be killed by anyone. And they also don't understand why anyone with such authority could ever rise from the dead because why would they ever die in the first place? One of the questions I often ask sometimes when I'm reading this is, why do they have such a hard time with the resurrection? Why is it so hard for them to get? Because after all, they've seen Jesus raise other people from the dead, have they not? 
Well, yeah, they've seen other people raise Jesus from the dead, but can you think about it? What do you do if the person who raises people from the dead is himself dead? (laughs) This is new to them. They have not had 2,000 years of church history to clarify this for them. They've only had a few weeks to begin to understand this. And it says in verse 32, they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Jesus was continually teaching them this, and they were continually not understanding these things. I think more than likely it was because they were afraid of the clarification they received last time. You remember what happened last time he asked? They got this lesson on selflessness. But Jesus, again, is trying to show them. He's trying to get them to understand that the mission of any leader has direct implications for the follower. Let me repeat that. The mission of any leader has direct implications for the follower. He knows that they're not yet ready to follow him because they don't understand what he is trying to accomplish. And we all struggle with this from time to time. How many of you watch an infomercial and you see this advertisement for like rock hard abs and no body fat and you think, yes, that would be great. I'm going to buy this machine or I'm going to take this nutritional supplement. And then you love the idea of just the the being fit, being in shape, but... (laughs) Once you get into it, you realize, oh, this costs more than just money. This is going to take my time. This is going to take my effort. This is going to hurt if I want this. They say that the first stage in grief is denial. We just initially think that, oh, well, I'll be able to have this. But then we think, oh, I don't really know if I want that. They love the idea of the glory associated with Christ. But once they got into the details of what it would look like to follow him, they were pretty resistant to his claims. They knew that there would be direct implications for him, his mission, and their following him. It's a suicide mission for the Son of God. It's unthinkable. And they know that this might affect them as well. And I would have you understand this in the context of this passage, that Jesus' death and resurrection are fundamental to the pursuit and implementation of a Christian faith. It's fundamental to the pursuit and implementation of the Christian faith to understand what Jesus was trying to accomplish. I know for some of you who grew up in church that you think, yes, I've heard it, I get it, Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again. I don't need to know that anymore. I want you to know that this is fundamental to following Christ. Having this idea on your mind is what it means to be a Christian. This is where he was headed, this is where or how he intends for you to lead your life. I'll give you two examples of that. One of the first is in marriage. Do you remember in Ephesians chapter 5? where Paul begins talking to the husbands. And what is it that he tells them? How is it that they're supposed to love their wives? As Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. It wasn't just, oh, well, that was past tense. Jesus died a long time ago. Now I'm just going to get on to my marriage and do the best I can. No, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection had implications even for the marriage relationship. You know what it also has implications for? Church membership relationship. Turn with me quickly over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Remember Paul is talking to the folks at Philippi. He's concerned about some disunity in the church. And he tells them in verses 2 through 4 of chapter 2 that they need to be selfless and that they need to serve one another. And notice how he backs this up in verse 5. 
Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He said, all right, if you really want to serve one another in the church, you're going to remember what Jesus did for you. And then he details it for you. He says in verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, thought it not equality with God, or thought not, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Pause. Now that's some pretty heavy theology there about the cross. But why is he telling them that? Why does he want them to remember that? Because the mission of Christ had implications for their everyday living with one another. When they would understand that Jesus had dedicated his entire life to giving everything that he had for the good of his people, securing their own salvation, he intended for them to live that out in their relationship with one another. He intended it for the marriage relationship. He intended it for church members with one another. And then notice he even gets to the resurrection or the more glorious aspects in verse 9. Therefore, on that behalf, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice that even the resurrection, the fact that he was given glory by God afterward was to motivate them and help them remember that, hey, look, you may selflessly serve one another. You may give yourself for one another, but there is glory to come in the end. All I want you to understand from this is that the cross of Christ has implications for those who follow him, and it calls us to selflessness. It calls us to humility. Having seen how Jesus' inevitable sacrifice calls us to humility, we can now see a second call for humility. And it comes in verses 30 through 37. And here we see Jesus' illogical means to significance, or his illogical method for significance. Notice, this is so radical. Verses 33 and following, he says, And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing, by the way? Now, I love how Jesus sets this up. <laughs> he, he sets them up because it says in verse 34 that they kept silent, like guilty schoolboys. They, they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Do you see the dissonance here? Are you catching the, like, the narrative flow you have Jesus talking about how he's going to give everything. He's going to die on their behalf. And somehow they ignore that and have a secret conversation with one another about who the greatest person is. It doesn't make any sense. But Jesus sets it up. They're in the privacy of a house. He asks them this question he, he brought up something they were already talking about. And I, I just have to say, this is a shameful conversation. Like, once you get past 10 years old, I couldn't ever imagine really talking about who's the greatest. Like, maybe my dad can beat up your dad. Or my team's better than your team. But I don't know about saying, personally, yeah, I'm better than you are. No, you're not as good as I am. No, if we were charting it, I think, okay, Jesus number one, and I'm number two, and... Maybe you're somewhere between three and four. It's just a hard conversation to have. But they were having it. And you say, why in the world would anybody have this conversation about who's the most important? I want you to know, when you read through the Gospels especially, you'll know that this was a fundamental part of the Judaism of the day. 
they were very much concerned with who was first. I mean, the idea of being right with God was a very public thing. They wore very special outfits to denote their righteousness. They would even literally blow trumpets before they gave so that people could see them giving. They would pray, not in a closet, but they would pray out on a street corner as loudly as possible so that everybody could hear them. Spirituality was a public competition. It was a pageant, if you will, to impress yourself. I mean, to impress yourself upon other people and to show how righteous you were before God Almighty. So for them, that's what religion is. It's a public deal. And so for us, we know better now because we've been influenced by the Christian message for hundreds of years. But for them, it just kind of made sense. Who's first? And Jesus turns it into a formal teaching opportunity. Look at verse 35. Notice this. It says, He sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, Those three verbs just represent what it means for a rabbi of the day to get into his formal teaching setting. They taught sitting, not standing like we do today. Then, once he was seated, he would call his disciples or his students to himself. They would gather around, and then he would begin teaching. So he sets up this formal opportunity, and notice the teaching that comes out of his mouth. It is mind-blowing. It says, at the second half of verse 35, If anyone would be first, let's pause here. This is what they wanted, right? They're they're pretty excited about this. Jesus is finally going to settle who's first, who's the greatest. He must be last of all and servant of all. Last of all? It means exactly what you think it means. The back of the line, the bottom of the list, last place in the race. That's what he's telling them. You would do this. You would act this way. And notice this. He said you would be last of all. This is the exact opposite of first. He's not even saying toward the bottom of the list. He's saying at the very bottom of the list. And then he says this, servant of all. What's the servant? The one who does the bidding of another. The culture of that time considered service to be especially demeaning and undignified. Plato had written, how can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? This is a popular notion of the day. No one would want to be a servant. You were only a servant because you couldn't afford to buy your own freedom. Yet, Jesus says, be a servant of all. Again, this is the opposite of greatness. It is the opposite of firstness. He is telling them that they would be all about others. And then he gives an illustration. I love a good illustration. And if we didn't send all the kids up to junior church, I would actually use an illustration right now of this. But notice what it says in verse 36. He took a child, so they're in somebody else's house. He takes one of the children that are there and puts them in the midst of them. And taking them in his arms, he said to them, so get the picture of what's going on here. Jesus calls this young child, and again, it's the same word that was used last week, so I would assume it's a a child somewhere between the ages of four and six years old because he can actually pick them up. And it says that he held him in his arms. The word there actually means to hug. Jesus hugged this child in his arms. He has him in the midst of them. The, The tenderness is beautiful. And he tells them that whoever receives one like this, this little child, it's like Receiving me. You, you want a picture of what it means to be great? 
You show your love, your care, your affection, your warmth, your reception, your hospitality. You show it to the people that can't pay you back. You show it to the people that don't have any opportunity or means to do anything for you. The word that you see repeated a few times there, if anyone would, excuse me, in verse 36, put him in the midst of them and he said to them, whoever receives such a child and whoever receives me and receives not me, It's the same word for welcoming someone or showing hospitality. Um, You do this all the time. I assume that if you have someone over to your house for dinner, that you go through the same kind of rat race that we do at our house, (laughs) which is to make everything look presentable and nice before they get there. Now, it looks pretty fine most of the time. But there's this urgency to like, before the person gets to the door, to like throw all the toys into the closet for us, to make sure like the candle's lit that we never burn, to put the essential oils in so that it smells nice in the house. That's the only time we remember to do it. I mean like all of that type of thing because this person's special. We want them to feel comfortable in our house and we want them to think that we act this way all the time. (laughs) Maybe that's just me. Nobody else does that. Or you do the same thing if you want to impress a client. Nobody tries to get an account and just says, hey, meet me at Burger King. No. <laughs> they say, hey, let's go to a nice restaurant. Let me take you to play a game of golf. Let me take you hunting. Let, right, let me show you some kindness. Why? In most of those cases, it's because we expect something in return. We either want them to compliment us for our house. We want them to give us the account. But Jesus says, no, I want you to take that same time and energy that you would spend welcoming someone, but do it to the people that you can't get anything from. And notice, he isn't talking about children. This isn't some closet call for all of us to go serve in the nursery next week. He says, do it to those who are like these or such as these. What is it about a child? Well, in our society, we think that children are the focal point of life. But you need to understand that in the Near East... That is not true. Societies with high infant mortality rates and great human labor needs could not afford to be sentimental about kids. Judaism, in particular, treated children as secondary members of society because they could not contribute to need and therefore lack status. So don't think American children and how they're elevated above everything running moms ragged all the time, but think Near Eastern concept of children. The ones who can't pay you back. The ones that don't have really any unique thing to contribute to society. The takers as opposed to the givers. And so Jesus says, we're to welcome and receive the weak, the unpopular, the unremarkable. Those who can't benefit your personal status. We're supposed to do this like Jesus did. This is the concrete illustration. The path, the means, the method to greatness in God's eyes. Now, what are such children? What do we mean by that? Well, when we read Jesus, especially in Matthew 18, on the same topic, it becomes clear that what he has in mind are actually other believers. He was talking about one another. See, you need to understand that the first century church was filled with losers, if you will. They were not the popular, prominent people in society. It was not the people who had political status that comprised the church in those first years. 
It was the ones who were rejected, the ones who were despised. They, they were not the movers and shakers. They were the folks that were in need. And it was a haphazard band of followers of Jesus. Nobody all that popular. And he was saying, like, look, you need to care for those who cannot advance your personal cause. Be more consumed with the cause of Christ. Why? Why is he giving us this? Why is he telling us that we need to be last? Why is he telling us to spend time and energy and money on people that can't pay us back? Verse 37, in the last half, notice this. He says, whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. So if you receive one of these kids, you receive me. And if you receive me, you receive not me, but him who sent me. Now it's all about reception. He says, receiving these people who can't pay you back is receiving me, Jesus. And when you receive me, Jesus, you receive the one who sent me, who is God. So he's making this a condition of what it means to follow him. There are implications of this text, not just for your better heaven, but for whether or not you make it to heaven in the first place. You have not received Christ if you do not live this way. You have received Christ if you do live this way. Do you understand? Because he directly connects the things. He says, look, receive such children, you've received me. By implication, if you've rejected such a practice, you've rejected me. And if you've rejected me, what does it say? You've rejected him who sent me. True greatness, eternal significance, serving the insignificant, putting self last for the eternal good of others is equal to showing favor to Jesus and ultimately to God himself. So how do you know if you've received Jesus? I'd ask it to you this way. Have you parked your selfish ambition and exchanged it for a passion for service in Jesus' kingdom, accomplishing his work. I used to go to a camp, I think. Sarah's been with me to this camp before. When they were teaching this at this camp in North Carolina, they would always repeat this over and over again. There's just two choices on the shelf, pleasing God or pleasing self. There's just two choices on the shelf, my friends, this morning for you here today. If your life is oriented around God and His purposes, or is oriented around self and your own purposes. The one that is willing to deny self for the good of the Savior and His purposes is the one that has received Jesus and thereby the one who has received God. The life that has rejected the Savior's purposes and method of greatness for His own significance and is living life solely for Himself is the one who has rejected Jesus and thereby rejected God. Do you understand? I'm trying to make this as clear as possible. So, let's do a little bit of examining in our own lives for a moment. How are we doing in our discipleship of Jesus? Let's say that you're here today and you said, you know what, I've chosen Jesus. Uh, I, I'm, wi- I'm not in this thing for myself. I'm willing to serve the lowly. I'm willing to be last. I'm willing to be the servant of all. Life is not about me. It's all about Him. If that's you, let's ask ourselves some hard questions on the basis of this text, okay? Let's ask one about your friends. Who is it that you want to impress? Who is it that you like to spend time with? Just a test here. Jesus says that if we're not in it for ourselves, if we are submitted to him, if we've received him, we're going to spend our time with the people that don't necessarily make a direct contribution for us. So who do you love? Who do you hang out with? Why do you hang out with them? 
Is it because they accept you for who you are? Because they understand you? Because they like you? Because they make you feel good? Or is it because you want to serve them like Jesus did? Do you hang out with them because you want to help them like Jesus did? Because you want to encourage them like Jesus would? Because you want to be there for them like Jesus did? That's the difference. All right, let me give you a test from another, another sphere because one of the places in which we can see our selfishness and lack of humility more than any other, and I don't know why we get a free pass from this, I pray that we in our small groups would call each other to the carpet on this, but is in the realm of social media. We are gods in our own minds, and we're all about promoting self when we get to online opportunities. So who do you follow? Who do you interact with? What do you publish? And why do you publish it? Do you like the attention that you get? I mean, do you automatically put something online and then like check it back you know, an hour later and see if anybody liked it? Do you like the validation you receive? Do you like the popularity you have? Or is social media a means for you to serve like Jesus, to love like Jesus, to encourage like Jesus? I'm not denying that there are times where you just post something because you didn't even think about it. But there needs to be a careful examination from time to time where we ask ourselves, why did I put online what I did put online? Was it because I was looking for validation? Because I wanted to impress? Because I was hoping to advance my name or my own agenda? Or was it because I wanted to serve? I wanted to encourage. I wanted to share God's grace and His goodness to me. I I wanted somebody else to know something good that God had done in my life, maybe to be an encouragement to them. You could post the same pictures with different motivations. The same quotes for different motivations. I don't have anybody in mind. I'm just saying it's something to examine. Are you in it for yourself? Or are you exhibiting the humility that Jesus calls for? I think there's one more area in which we need to be aware of. And I'm just speaking very pastorally here. And it's even where you sit in church. Think about why did you sit where you sat today? Was it because you wanted to be around a certain group of people? Because you were hoping that somebody would serve you? Uh, Pastor Andrew uh, gave me a copy of a book the other week that was really helpful. And Andrew, I read it this week, by the way. It's only 60 pages. But it's called How to Walk into Church. <laughs> and it's a great title because it, it challenges you to think, all right, so like when you're walking in church, what's going through your mind when you're walking in? Now, sometimes, you know, with people with multiple kids, it's just like, I just need to sit down. (laughs) All right, I get that. (laughs) I understand that. Um, But what the thing is ultimately calling us to do is to sit in places where we think we could be of service and use to other people. Like, you know what, I need to sit here because I need to encourage this brother or sister in Christ. I haven't even been able to talk to them in weeks. You know, I'm going to actually sit over here today so that I can check in with so-and-so because, you know, I, I don't know what's going on in their life, and I really do want to encourage them well. Do you even see how something like church could be done for our own recognition and service? For those of you who perform publicly, for me who preach public, for those of us who stand under these lights, we have to be careful about that. Why do I do what I do? Is it because I'm hoping that somebody will tell me on the way back, good sermon, Pastor, I'm glad you did that. Or is it because I'm looking to serve? We always need to be on the lookout. And this is what Jesus is saying. Look, if you have oriented your life around me, you're willing to just do what you do, not because you get a pat on the back or because you get the credit. That's what it looks like to follow me. 
If you're in this only because you want your own feelings stroked and your pride inflamed, you may not have received me. So we've been studying how humility is essential to following Jesus. It's not optional. On what basis do we know this? Well, Jesus' inevitable mission of sacrifice. It happened for him. It's going to happen for us. Also, his illogical means to significance. It doesn't make sense, but you want to be great in God's eyes, you're going to be last in the world's eyes. You're going to be last with one another. You're going to serve one another. And then finally, we'll see how Jesus' inclusive movement of support calls us to humility. His inclusive movement of support. Look at 38 to 41. You'll see this very clearly. Jesus makes it clear that They're not doing this alone, but there's a whole movement of people that follow him. Verse 38, John said to him, something provoked him to ask this, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. That is key. Notice that. He didn't say they were not following you. The word following is used exclusively in the book of Mark to talk about following Jesus. He is always the object, except for right here where they use the word us instead of you. We're seeing John's concern now. John isn't concerned about Jesus and his glory. John is actually displaying a concern about this guy not getting in line with them and what they think. He says, we tried to stop him. (laughs) And notice, this is a natural concern We would ask ourselves as careful students of Scripture, how is it that somebody else had the authority to cast out demons apart from these 12? We know from reading other Gospels that there was an instance in which Jesus gave the authority to cast out demons to a group of 70. And presumably this was probably one of those individuals. They obviously had the freedom to move about. He was doing this in Jesus' name. He wasn't doing this in some type of magical or incantational type of way. So what we have going on here is someone who just isn't hanging out with the twelve, but someone who is trying to faithfully represent Christ. And in this age, God or Jesus had given him this authority and this power. And John is concerned about this. And his concern is that this guy is not in their group. He seems concerned with self-protection. He's displaying some type of exclusivity. He's wanting to maintain a monopoly on status and power. And notice what Jesus corrects him in verse 39. Do not stop him. For one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. Now, what's going on here is that Jesus actually forbids his disciples from forbidding others from doing his work. He's acknowledging that those who are given the ability to do his miraculous works, will not eventually speak evil of him. That is just a very difficult way of saying that they are not enemies. Other people who are advancing my cause that don't happen to belong to our group of 12 are not our enemies. You get what I'm saying? Basically communicating, you are wrong to be concerned about your role in the kingdom as opposed to the overall goal of the kingdom. In the context of Jesus' work being advanced, the one who does not oppose us is with us. That's what he's saying. Hey, look, if there's somebody else who's preaching the gospel and good things are happening and he's doing it in my name, just because he's not with us doesn't mean that he's against us. 
for those who are not opposed to us or with us. Now, this is a, basically a warning against friendly fire. You know what friendly fire is, right? <laughs> In an army context, you don't want to take shots from your own team. You don't want to take shots from anybody on, in your battalion. What I need to clarify here just for a moment is that this is not a general statement about people who are morally neutral to Jesus. And as you think hard with me for a second, if you misunderstand this, it could be damning. I want you to know that this is not a general statement about people who are morally neutral to Jesus. How many of you know someone or have ever run across someone who says, yeah, I'm not necessarily for Jesus, but I'm not against him. I mean, he was all right guy. This statement is not, it's not communicating that, well, since he's not totally against Jesus, he's not for Jesus. The context here, again, is someone who was preaching in Jesus' name and accomplishing Christ-intended results. This wasn't just some general dude on the street saying, I think Jesus is an okay guy. John 14, 6 is still in the Bible where Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me let's be clear about that but that being said we can get back to the point of this jesus adds in verse 41 truly i say to you whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to christ will by no means lose his reward so here's the principle that he wants them to take away from this in light of their partisanship in light of their exclusivity in light of their clickishness He wants them to know that God will reward those who seek to advance Christ's agenda and movement. Hey, you're not going to lose anything because somebody else gains. You should be happy that other people are advancing the cause. And if you're concerned about them and you want to help them, and even doing something small like giving them a cup of cold water, you're not going to lose your reward. There's plenty of reward to go around. Does that make sense? Don't let your pride and selfishness and exclusivity prohibit you from being kind to others who belong to Christ. In the context, what he's calling them to do, and they would need this desperately sooner than they realize, he's calling them to look for allies in accomplishing Christ's mission. Not to unduly attack someone who doesn't belong to their little group. The goal, again, is more important than the role that you play in it. But great teams understand this and teach this. I mentioned this March Madness and the ability to watch good basketball. It's my favorite time of year. I will not watch sports again until college football season. But I love seeing the insight in these locker rooms, and I, I love listening to coach interviews. And the, the coach of my own team that I pulled for even said earlier this year, I just heard it again, and you hear coaches say this all the time. He says, look, as long as my guys play like the name on the front of the jersey is more important than the name on the back of the jersey, everything's going to be okay. You get the analogy, right? So when you play basketball, the team name's on the front, your individual name's on the back. As long as you care more about the team than you do yourself, everything's going to be okay. And I think that's what what Jesus is doing here. He's letting them know that, look, don't worry about your name. Don't worry about our little group here. There will be more who will be participating in the work, and you need to seek to partner with them and ally with them. I mean, to get together with them, to encourage them in the work, because we've got something bigger going on than just you right now. Elton Trueblood once said, and this is so key, this church is essential to the Christian Not because it brings him personal advancement or even inspiration. 
but because with all of its failures, it is an indispensable instrument for the redemption of the world. Let me make this more personal. I'll take this same quote, and I'm going to put our church name in it. You ready? Faith Bible Church is essential for you as a Christian, not because it brings you personal advancement or even inspiration, but because with all of its failures, it is an indispensable instrument for the redemption or the salvation of the world. Would you agree with that? I hope so. We want to encourage you individually. I hope that you enjoy being here, but you need to understand that the goal is is more important than the role. We're trying to accomplish something bigger than any individual here, bigger than my name. This is about Christ and the gospel and seeing his purposes advanced. Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, you must realize that you're not going to do it alone. Others, people, even not in your circle, will also be a part of the Christ movement. And I want you to know, guys, be careful when I say this, but hear me. Even service to Christ can be a breeding ground for selfishness. You get that? I mean, even when you say, you know, I'm going to serve Jesus, it, you can still do so with a heart of selfishness. This presents a warning for our church, for our circles of friends, and then for ourselves. This is the last three things I'll say. I want you to think about what Jesus is teaching here in light of our church as a whole. One of the things that we're going to have to grasp is that there is diversity in the kingdom and that there are no competitors among true Christians and we are not in competition with any other church in the area. It's just good to remember that. I don't think we have a problem with that, but I have been in places where that kind of can be the attitude sometimes. Like, well, if they're not in our church, they're not in a church, and therefore they're our enemy. (laughs) Listen, what we care about are people who are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ faithfully. That's why you hear me, by the way, every week pray for another church in the area and pray for another missionary. I'm just trying to remind us that we're not the only ones doing gospel ministry. Would I agree with every church that I pray for on Sunday with everything that they do? Absolutely not. But I pray for them because I know that they are faithfully preaching the gospel. And I pray that you would see people, other Christians, who maybe not even don't go to this church as true brothers and sisters, true partners and allies. Paul was the best at this. He modeled it for us in Philippians 1. Do you remember what was going on? He's in prison. Jesus, the message of Jesus is getting really popular, so some people are starting to want to preach it. And some, just out of, to spite Paul, because he can't do it, because he's locked up to a Roman guard, start preaching out of spite. Some start preaching Jesus because they think they can make more money, and Paul knows all of this, and listen to his response. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. (laughs) It doesn't matter. He doesn't care. As long as Christ is being preached, he rejoices, and that is us. Let's not assume that we're the only ones doing the work of the gospel. There's another area in which I think this message could help us, and that is not only with our church as a whole, but now I'd have you consider or examine your own circle. Your circle of friends, your sphere of influence, whatever you want to call it, the people you hang out with on a normal basis. Now I get it, there's, I don't know, 200 people here today. 
it's kind of impossible for all of you to hang out with everybody like in the week. <laughs> but just in your natural rhythm of life, you're going to spend more time with some people than you will with others, and that's okay. But within that, we also would need to understand that the inclusiveness of Jesus' movement has implications for us on our social level as well, especially in a small church like this. Do you remember what was going on in the church at Corinth? Most people think about the fornication or the adultery that was taking place. That was one of the problems. But Paul's greatest problem, you know the big deal that he had with that church, was their divisions. It's one church, but they had divided themselves into three groups. One of them said, I'm of Paul. The other said, I'm of Cephas or Peter. And the other said, I'm of Apollos. And so in chapter 1 and then again in chapter 3, he's going to tell them like, no, 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 you can't act this way. You can't be divided from one another. You can't organize into your own little groups even within the church. Here, Jesus reminds us that his work is going to be accomplished in a church like this with people who have a different skin color than we do, with people who come from different backgrounds than we do, his work will be accomplished with people who like different music styles than you do, people who dress differently than you do, and people who educate their children differently than you do. And guess what? We're all supposed to still get along and partner together for the gospel. We have to be careful about letting things smaller than the gospel begin to define us. It must really be the gospel alone. And I would pray that as you do settle into some of those natural patterns of life and those normal friendships, that the center of those things wouldn't just be your age or your race or your sports team, but that it would be Jesus himself that draws you together. That's what a text like this reminds us to do. And then finally, the text invites us to examine our humility, not just on the church level or the level of our own circle, but even ourselves. Let's take one last look at ourselves. I read Philippians 2 already earlier, but it says, look, there's no place for selfishness in the body of Christ. Nobody can be here because they think that the church is just going to meet their felt needs alone. Of course we have needs. We need other Christians. But we should be concerned about something greater than that. I want you to know as people continue to follow Jesus and partner with this body, your humility will be tested here. Somebody could cut you off in the parking lot. I want you to know that like, like that illustration I gave it could happen. But it's not just that kind of stuff. I think one of the things that you need to be aware of, because I hear this talk a lot, people love to tell me like, oh, I love Faith Bible Church because it's so small. It's just such a small place. I'm glad that this is such a small, this is the smallest church I've been a part of since I was 20 years old. And I love it. I really do. But I can't guarantee that the Lord will always keep our church this size. I hope that's not the only reason why you're here. It's because the church is small. See, we have to be careful because people are going to join the church, I think, who may be more administratively gifted than you are, who are more musically gifted than you are. There may be people who are better teachers, people who are better with children, people who are more generous, people who are more relational. And the question will be, like, what are you going to do when that happens? Like, when when you don't get the same level of attention from other people, (laughs) how will you respond I'm just encouraging you to guard against this pride. I I came across a quote this week that was so helpful. It says that that pride is like sour milk. It looks good on the outside, but you can smell it when it gets close. 
You know, some of you could come in here looking fine on a Sunday, but you could be just as sour. What does pride smell like? It smells like someone asking, well, why don't people recognize my gifts? It smells like someone saying, what's in this for me? Like, why don't I get more attention here? Why didn't I get invited to that? Why don't they do this for me? John Chrysostom, one of the early church leaders in like 8300 said, men who are in love with their own applause have their spirits starved not only when they're blamed for the wrong reason, but even when they fail to be constantly praised. Is that you? We want to encourage you, but sometimes, sometimes it just happens. Sometimes like you're going to do something for the Lord and you may not get any earthly credit for it. It's okay. You need to understand that what you're a part of, the church, is more important than the part you play. What you're a part of here is more important than the part you play. The goal of accomplishing Christ's mission together is more important than the role you play in it. So the question would be, for all of us, for myself as a pastor, am I in this for myself, for my glory, or for the gospel? What brings me back? So you want to follow Jesus? You claim to follow him? You need to know humility, selflessness, whatever you want to call it, it's essential, non-negotiable. His mission of sacrifice implies it, that we have to have humility. This countercultural method for achieving significance demands it. His inclusive movement of support, the fact that it's not just us, requires it. And I think as an expression of humility to our Lord, It'd be best for us to close our service today in in prayer together. And I'm going to ask Pastor Phil to come and lead us in a song of prayer that we've actually put together to conclude this service. So make this your prayer this week. And it's exciting to see what the Lord will do as we follow Christ together. Phil, please come lead us.